Hello and welcome to episode number 149 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Tuesday, September 23rd, 2014. I will be sharing the second part of my interview with Luis Sierra, who is with the California Center for Cooperative Development, and we will continue our discussion of cooperative development. I will conclude this episode with some of my own thoughts on some of the themes that have been featured on the Agro Innovations podcast for the past several weeks, so be sure to stay tuned for that as well. So let's begin with this interview with Luis Sierra. One of the notable things about many of the case studies that you offer are that they're almost exclusively focused on uh, the supply chain post-harvest. So whether it's a processing facility or some type of shipping packing facility or a marketing cooperative, most of it's dealing with connecting producers to consumers. Obviously, this is important work, and we need to see a lot more of these types of cooperatives forming around the country. What I think is notable, however, is there's also a lot of important work, especially in sustainable agriculture, to be done on the production end. And often the production end of things is constrained by scale, such that we have a lot of individual producers uh, producing at a relatively small scale, especially when we compare sustainable agricultural methods to industrial agricultural methods. Um, and yet we do not see any or very many good examples of producer cooperatives that are focused on the production aspects of things. And so that could involve things like pooling resources to drill wells, to acquire land leases, allowing specialization and division of labor within the cooperative so that certain people focus on forestry aspects, other people can focus on horticulture or grazing. Um and there are very few examples of this in the United States, at least, that I'm aware of, and I believe that you're aware of, too. However, you are aware of some case studies that uh, may provide some insight into this. First of all, uh, answer the question, why do you think it has been uh, so sparse of an effort to develop production-led cooperatives? And share with us some of the case studies that um, you know, will help us to understand this dynamic a little better. Sure. Well, when I hear that description, the first thing that I think about is, is classifying those kind of cooperatives as, as worker cooperatives that are engaged in, in farm business, such that everybody is, is working for one, one company, that, that's, uh, one, one business that, that is engaged in production, actually all the way through marketing. Um, and that is a little bit different than what we might want to call as a, a service co-op in which independent producers, yes, will, will form a cooperative for irrigation or for simply sharing a large piece of land in which they, they divide up and manage independently. Um, so, you know, I'll first talk about the farms operated as worker cooperatives. And it's interesting um, for me to have learned, um, and I, I learned a lot of this through Miriam Wells's. Um, book on uh, farm worker, essentially her research on farm workers in California. 
that in the 1960s and I think early 70s, it was uh, a, pro- a federal program um, that, well, the, the large umbrella was called the War on Poverty. Um, and there was a program within that that uh, actually financed a lot of worker cooperatives in agriculture. Um, and, uh, and in the 60s and 70s, there were, you know, I'd say a few dozen uh, throughout the country that were formed. There were strawberry cooperatives, strawberry producer cooperatives, um, uh, mixed vegetable cooperatives, and some apple cooperatives. And um, of those, there are unfortunately none that exist. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do, uh, I think, with uh, the, the, the intense learning curve there is from going from farm worker to being farm um, owner and responsible for all aspects of, of managing a farm. Um, and it's not just individual learning, but it's, it's collective learning. It has to happen um, at an equal rate. Um, otherwise, different parts of the production system um, start not working, and when one piece doesn't fit, the whole system comes down. And so it, I, I consider these worker cooperatives to be really very difficult. It takes a very special mix of people to, to make them work. Um, when we look at, uh, in California today, we can really only look at one uh, worker cooperative called South Central Farmers um, that farms near Buttonwillow and has for the past, oh, six or seven years. And they, they came out of a, a, uh, a social struggle um, from the, the South Central Farms uh, near Watts. And when those folks lost their land that they've had for, oh, 20-something years, somebody offered them a, a large piece of land, uh, about 80 acres near Buttonwillow. And I, I have to say it's, you know, uh, that a, a big factor in, uh, in their success has been uh, among their leadership. Um, there are two or three folks who have demonstrated a lot of leadership and a lot of organizational capacity, and especially uh, uh, um who is one of the founders and is kind of uh, their uh, their general manager. You know, a member, but um, but acting as a, as a general manager. He brings uh, a lot of um, engineering experience from his previous um, work experience, and I think it's from that kind of systems-oriented um, thinking that they've been able to establish systems that um, that really emphasize quality control and efficiency. And so it's been really fascinating for me to learn about that worker cooperative and seeing that it's been successful. I mean, they have struggles, namely because that part of California has severe um, soil quality and water quality and just general water availability issues. Um, but uh, in spite of all that, they have been able to create job opportunities for about a dozen, at least a dozen people um, who are all equal member owners. So in the production part, you know, a farm uh, operating as a worker cooperative uh, has hundreds of steps that everyone has to master. Not, well, not necessarily everyone, but they all have to come together. And, and that is, uh, you know, a few orders of magnitude more complicated than uh, what is already complicated, which is just independent farmers getting together to uh, for the post-harvest steps of, um, of farming. And so 
that for me has been one of the more difficult um, set of projects that we've engaged in. Um, it, it does get easier when we talk about independent producers farming or sharing a piece of land, um, so having kind of a, a renter land lease cooperative, um, and which we've seen in San Marino and around Monterey Bay, um, especially among the um, the graduates of the Agriculture and Land-Based Training Association. And the nice thing is that you don't really need you don't need to come up with very complicated um, organizational systems. It, it, it can come together in a fairly non-administrative, heavy uh, fashion. Um, so, yeah, the the kinds of, of cooperatives that exist in production it, it really does depend a lot on uh, on people's business competencies and ability to. Um, develop a shared system that people um, all understand how they can plug into. I guess it's – I've got a couple of comments on this. I mean, first, it feels like this cooperative that you describe, this uh, farm worker cooperative, is like this little fragile gem of a potential solution for a lot of the problems that the sustainable agriculture movement faces. And yet, you know, I had to really, or, or you had to really look to find this example. I mean, they're not very common. Um, and, and the next comment on that, which I guess is a corollary to my first comment, is why is this so difficult? I mean, it feels, it feels like it's... Sh- there, there, there must be something I'm missing. I mean, we have all sorts of larger enterprises, even in the agricultural space, that function very, very efficiently. Why does this worker-owned cooperative model, when it's layered on top of that economy of scale, make it so much more difficult for people to actually be able to do it? I, I, I think it really does come down to the complexity of farming, especially when you're dealing with I mean, even one crop, um, it, there are many, many steps involved in the production process. Uh, and it takes a lot of learning and communication to be able to uh, have a group of people understand the system that they're developing and understand their role within that, um, that those steps in production and eventually marketing. So it is really very fragile. Um, and especially when we're talking about, um, for most of the co-ops that I know that are worker-owned farms, um, many of them are uh, have started out as essentially as, as previously uh, farm laborers, um, where their experience of agriculture has been very narrow. It hasn't; their responsibilities haven't spread uh, across the, the production steps. Um, and so there's a, a lot of learning that has to happen very quickly. Um, and it, it is precisely for those kind of people reasons that worker cooperatives in agriculture are, are, are fragile. You know, I, 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 we also, our center works uh, in developing worker cooperatives in uh, green cleaning, office and house cleaning, and in catering. And when we look at all the steps that are involved in those things, we might say that there are 50 to 100 steps that each member has to master from answering the phone to getting paid and knowing where to put that money. In agriculture, I would expect that the steps from 
figuring out what you're going to plant to getting paid might be 500. Uh, so I think it comes down to, yes, you, there are uh, unfortunately only a few gems that um, that have been able to to become firm uh, worker cooperatives with a life that is longer than just a few years. But yet it feels like it's within our grasp. I mean, it feels like, I mean, you just said there's 500 steps. So if we had, you know, a good core team of capable people with different skills working to articulate what these 500 steps are, what the elements of success to this type of operation might be, maybe uh, create a HR process that recruits people who are not just farm laborers to the operation, but some people with some business management skills maybe or some finance skills and mix that team up a little bit. I mean, it feels like we just haven't done enough repetitions of creating these types of worker cooperatives to kind of have that process figured out. But it sounds like to me you've articulated a pathway, certainly with a lot of work in front of it, but that's achievable, no? I would like to think so, yes. And we continually look for ways that we can make this, um, make these, these objectives um, graspable. So, yeah, it, then we get into issues of, of cooperative development that, uh, you know, we talk about uh, within our center staff, we talk about whether or not we should be providing technical assistance to, um, to, to people who want to form cooperatives, meaning that it's education, it's these, these kind of feasibility assessment tools, uh, trainings, or if we should be involved in the business of incubating, which means that we actually create the business, uh, start the business, and uh, one by one uh, incorporate members first as trainees and then as actual members, uh, member owners, um, as they demonstrate that they can complete those steps. And that is the model that we use for the worker cooperatives, um, our Green Green Broom Brigade um, House and Office Cleaning Cooperative. That's the the model that we're using there. And in agriculture, yes, that... uh, it is a topic within our um, within our staff that we discuss how can we approach this um, uh, and at the same time there is a lot of well it's a lot of, of risk to manage and a lot of capital that's required to do this do a project like that uh, correctly so you are I think talking about a um, a, a, uh, a strategy or, I guess, a, a set of issues that yeah, we think about every day uh, and, and we try to build on our successes because even with our, um, our, our office and house cleaning cooperative, there are tremendous challenges and the, the progress is uh, uh, sometimes slow and sometimes faster than we can handle. Um, so it, when we try to apply this to agriculture, then those those issues get magnified. Well, I think it could be understated how revolutionary, in fact, the idea of worker-owned cooperatives is. Um, it, it really brings democracy to a whole new aspect of society from which it has been excluded for many years. Do you get a lot of support or pushback from different more official organizations in your region, whether that be counties or land-grant universities, extension agents, NRCS people? Are they active collaborators? Are they 
just kind of passive people doing their own thing in their own world. What what is your interaction and response in the larger uh, community of people who are working on on some of these related issues? It is a bit sad that uh, the University of California had a center for cooperatives uh, up until 2004, and it's the reason why our center exists independently as a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, is because the University of California uh, shut down the center in one of their many um, budget crises. Um, and, uh, and so there is nobody within the University of California or Cal State University uh, Cal State University system that really focuses on cooperative um, analysis. I mean, really answering the kind of questions that you're bringing to me, that was the role of the University of California and in um, uh, developing theories of developments that, that people like um, ourselves can actually carry out. Um, so there are um, we wish that we could get some pushback from the university, but they're just not at the table at all when it comes to cooperatives. We, you will find faculty that work on crop or, I guess, industry-specific issues in which cooperatives play a part, but um, it's never within the context of the cooperative enterprise. Um, so uh, we do operate in a bit of a, a vacuum. I mean, when we look for support, we look to other cooperative development centers like the Northwest Cooperative Development Center that covers Oregon and Washington, um, uh, uh, Idaho and Montana, those, those Northwest states. Um, we look for the Cooperative Development Institutes uh, on the East Coast, um, Keystone Cooperative Development Center in Pennsylvania. And uh, those are our peers. And we do come together uh, uh, with our own cooperative of cooperative development centers called Cooperation Works. And uh, that helps us all learn uh, faster than we would on our own, for sure. Well, I am hoping that you, through this conversation, I mean, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in the permaculture community, practicing permaculture, which is a design science uh, for sustainable living, and particularly with a, with a strong focus on land management and agriculture. And many of the people in the permaculture community listen to this podcast, and my hope is that we can create a dialogue between the community of people who are working on issues related to cooperative development and permaculture. I mean, I think both of our communities are ripe for collaboration, and hopefully this conversation will be the first of many uh, between you and I and between many other people who are thinking about these issues, and hopefully we can bring our two communities together and start trying to uh, find ways to leverage our work and uh, find mutual benefit in the different approaches that we have to, to these problems. I really welcome that, and we uh, host a forum every year called the California Cooperatives Conference that we're going to hold in Sacramento um, this coming uh, May. We have yet to set the specific dates, but it will be within the first two weeks of May. So if folks um, uh, check out our website, cccd.coop, and look for our updates about California Co-op Conference, that will be a session. We always carry a uh, a line of food cooperative um, organizing workshops and uh, and a worker cooperative set of workshops. So there are different tracks for different um, uh, for different interests. And most of this uh, 
conference really focuses on the organizing and startup phase of cooperative developments. Well, hopefully we can continue to be in touch and feature some of the aspects of that conference on this podcast. And also, hopefully, some of the people who are listening now are considering, I mean, you certainly have enough time to prepare to go to this conference in May um, and bring some of the principles of permaculture to the cooperative development community and vice versa and you know, start to get the ball rolling on this conversation and this dynamic. Thank you. Well, Luis Sierra, thank you very much for being on the Agro Innovations Podcast today. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing to preserve the cooperative t- tradition in this country. And thank you very much uh, for creating and working with the California Center for Cooperative Development. Thanks for helping spread the word. I'd like to thank Luis Sierra one more time for joining me on the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I have some thoughts of my own that I would like to share with the listeners. In the past few weeks, I have made the argument that permaculture is failing. This created some significant controversy on the internet. Different people reacted to my comments in different ways. Some reacted with indignation, and they refused to consider the possibility of what I was suggesting. Others challenged my metrics of success, which primarily uh, were profitability and the provision of a much greater percentage of the nation's food supply coming from permaculture. And many others chose to place the blame for some of the shortcomings that I identified on external forces, things like fiat money, cheap oil, and agro-industrial imperialism. Now, those people who have listened to this podcast for a long time know very well that I am sympathetic to these concerns, and I fully recognize many of these concerns that were identified as strong structural disincentives to permaculture. But more importantly, I think, I find the denialism about failure somewhat disconcerting. For many, failure is viewed as a negative thing, something to be shunned, avoided, rationalized, or dismissed. I view failure a little bit differently. For me, failure is instructive, worthwhile, and necessary. I want to be clear about what I am not saying. I'm not saying that permaculture has failed or that we should abandon it and try something else. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that we analyze some of our models of socioeconomic organization and that we do so with a critical eye and try to design better processes for the rapid scaling and growth of permaculture. I'm also suggesting that the lone farmer or family who all too often are eking out a living on the land and struggling to get ahead, this is more of a byproduct of Anglo-American culture and society and actually has very little to do with permaculture. In fact, from a very young age, Americans are encouraged in the virtues of solitary striving. I remember when I visited the Green Hills Farm Project in Missouri in the year 2012. And in that year, I had the opportunity to visit several local sustainable farms in fairly rural areas in Missouri. These were real livestock cropping polycultures in the heart of the United States. What struck me as I visited these places was how isolated each individual practitioner really was. Often it required one to two hours of driving for people to visit the nearest like-minded farmer. In fact, this 
phenomenon is so prevalent that it's not at all uncommon to hear the phrase, my neighbors think I'm crazy, in the permaculture and holistic management community. But let's be clear, these locations are little postage stamps of hope in what is otherwise a sea of monoculture. So over the past several weeks, this podcast has explored some different topics that may hint at a different way of doing things. In the model of the solitary striver, the land is viewed as the primary critical asset. But what I think people like Luis Sierra and Marcin Jakubowski are suggesting is that social organization and enterprise management are in fact the holy grail of scalable permaculture. As permaculturalists, we should identify what these processes are, how to implement them, and how to generate a decent living for all those involved. If we can develop worker-owned permaculture cooperatives whose purpose is to articulate and implement these sustainable management processes, then the perennial polycultures, the appropriate technologies, and the scalability should all fall into place somewhat naturally, certainly with a great deal of hard work, but not with the patchy results that we're getting now. In this way, it should become possible for small teams of 15 to 20 people to impact tens of thousands of acres in a profitable, repeatable, and consistent fashion. Clearly, these concepts need to be fleshed out in greater detail, and I invite you to help me do that as I continue this conversation on the Agro Innovations podcast. I encourage you to check out the Agro Innovations blog, where the front page of that has an interview by Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! with someone from the Mondragon Cooperative. And they talk about the history of the Mondragon Cooperative, and I think that's very instructive in terms of some of the ways that we in the permacultural community need to be thinking. And also I would encourage you to reach out to people like Luis Sierra and other people who are involved with cooperative development to learn what the past has to tell us, and learn some of the present efforts that are underway. And if you are aware of any examples or case studies that should be featured on this podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. You can click on the contact button on the website agroinnovations.com, and there's an email address, and that email address comes straight to me. If you like this podcast and want to support what I do, you can donate via PayPal by clicking on the Donate button on the right-hand side of the agroinnovations.com website. Next week is episode number 150, and as I have been alluding to in some previous episodes, it's going to be a really great episode, um, so I strongly encourage you to tune in. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast have been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. It is a very free Creative Commons license, so there are many things you can do with the audio from this podcast. To learn more about that, check out creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. My name is Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.